A listener note, this episode contains graphic details of a massacre and killing and is not suitable for some listeners. Will you state your name, age, and nationality? Pedro L. Felix, 32 years old, Filipino. What is your present rank and assignment? Captain, Inspector General Service, Philippine Army. Now, in April of 1942, were you a member of the Philippine Army Forces that surrendered to Japanese Imperial Forces on Bataan? Yes, sir. About how many men were with you at the time of surrender? I figure in my particular regiment, we were about 1,500 men, officers and men. After surrender, you say the men got into trucks and started towards the destination designated by the Japanese. Yes, sir. We reached as far as the Pantangan River. What happened when you reached the Pantangan River? We were stopped by Japanese soldiers who ordered us to get off our vehicles. The Japanese soldiers sorted out the enlisted men from the officers. They then allowed the privates to continue the march towards Balanga. About how many officers and non-commissioned officers were left when the privates were taken away? There were anywhere from 350 to 400 officers and non-commissioned officers left. And what happened? We were formed into columns of four men, and Japanese soldiers started tying our hands behind us with telephone wire. Each man connected, tied one behind the other. Go on, continue with what occurred at that time. We were marched in those columns of four to a ravine and were made to face toward the bottom of the ravine. There was a Japanese interpreter who spoke to us in Tagalog. He gave statements which can be translated this way. My friends, you have to be patient. This is your fate. Had you surrendered earlier, maybe we would not kill you. And then what happened, Captain? They made us sit on the ground. Just before executing us, the Jap soldiers around us stuck a cigarette in our mouths and lighted them for us. But on the given signal by the Jap officer in charge, they started bayoneting. This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II servicemen and women, civilians, guerrillas, and others captured by the Japanese forces in the Philippines. My great-grandfather, Alma Sam, was one of the POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell stories of his fellow captives. This is the last of four episodes about the Bataan Death March. Most of the Left Behind episodes tell the life story of one or more servicemen or women in the Philippines. I attempt to tell their before, during, and after, if there was an after the war. This episode, however, tells about an event, a massacre of Filipino officers and non-coms by Japanese soldiers. I want to re-emphasize my warning from the beginning. This episode focuses on a mass execution, and it includes details of that. I decided to tell this too little known event because it's important to know about, if only to illustrate what indoctrination, racism, extremist thinking, and war can lead regular, everyday people to do. The largest part of the fighting force on the Bataan Peninsula in early 1942 was the Philippine Army. The Philippine Army, established in 1936, was the Philippines' national army 
and was made up entirely of Filipino servicemen. Just before the war started, most of the Philippine army was placed under the umbrella of the U.S. forces in the Far East, and they withdrew with the U.S. armed forces to the Bataan Peninsula in early January 1942. Philippine native Pedro L. Felix, a handsome 28-year-old with a young-looking round face and a perfected military stance, his shoulders back and chest forward, was a 1938 graduate of the Philippine Military Academy in Baguio. I posted on Facebook and Instagram a wonderful picture of him looking quite dapper in his uniform, standing with fellow cadets at the academy. The links are in the show description. When World War II began, Felix was a first lieutenant, but in February 1942, while fighting on Bataan, he received a battlefield promotion to the rank of captain. When Bataan fell on April 9, 1942, Felix and his unit were on the far western coast of Bataan, near the town of Bagak. Each serviceman or unit had to surrender individually, so complete surrender of all Allied forces on Bataan took several days. Felix's unit surrendered directly to Japanese forces on April 11, 1942, which was two days after General King officially surrendered. Roughly half the military captives on Bataan surrendered at or near Maravellas on Bataan's southern tip. And I described that in episode 28 about Ray Hunt. Maravellas is the official starting point for the march, but along the way, POWs captured at other locations joined the march as it progressed northward along the eastern coastal road of the peninsula. Felix Pedro's unit, however, were captured on the peninsula's west coast. So, upon capture, Felix and the other roughly 1,500 enlisted men, non-commissioned officers, and officers were ordered to march towards Belanga, a town on Bataan's eastern coast. In 1946, Felix testified. If I remember right, sir, we surrendered about 11 o'clock on the 11th of April, 1942, and we stayed there for about five hours until they gave us orders to march towards Belanga. Those of us who were lucky to get transportation rode in automobiles and army trucks, while the rest of the men marched on foot. They started for Balanga, but drove only about 13 miles or 20 kilometers before stopping at the Pantangan River. The bridge spanning the river was broken and unpassable, so the men spent the night there at the river. Felix continued, The next morning, we repaired the bridge, and soon after the bridge was repaired, we continued on with our truck. We had hardly gone about two kilometers when we were stopped by Japanese soldiers who ordered us to get off our vehicles, and so we had to proceed on foot. The Japanese soldiers had the POWs walk southward for five miles, that's about eight kilometers, down a trail that ran north to south through the Bataan jungle and roughly paralleled the Pantangan River, which was down in a valley below them. They came upon a large downed tree that was blocking the trail, so the group stopped and they came to rest on a hilly, sloping part of the trail. Soon after that, a high-ranking Japanese officer arrived in a fancy car and held a small conference with the Japanese officers who were already there. After about 10 minutes, the high-ranking officer left. The surviving POWs later assumed that the man in this car ordered a mass execution. Now, I am a bit confused about who this man was. Captain Felix said that a Japanese guard told him 
that the man in the car was General Nara. Other sources attribute the execution order to Colonel Masanobu Tsuji, who a Japanese general later called, quote, the most determined singled protagonist in favor of war with the United States, close quote, and who was an influential advocate for the attack on Pearl Harbor. If Tsuji did in fact order the execution, it was beyond his command. Once that fancy car had left, the Japanese soldiers separated the Philippine army officers and non-commissioned officers from the privates, placing the group of 350 to 400 officers on one side of the trail. The privates were permitted to continue their march towards Belonga. Downhill from the POWs, encamped on the banks of the Pentangan River, was the Japanese 122nd Infantry. On the morning of April 12th, the soldiers were eating breakfast when a rumor swept from unit to unit through the camps. We're going to kill them, all of them. And then their leaders offered them sake, as much sake as they could drink. As they drank, some soldiers continued their boasts about conquering the Bataan Peninsula and their rants about hating Americans and Filipinos. As the soldiers toasted their good fortune to be alive after the bloody three-month battle, they started to remember all the comrades they'd lost because of the Americans and Filipinos, who had launched continual streams of bullets and shells on Japanese forces. So many men, now cremated remains encased in small boxes and waiting to be taken home. And now that enemy had surrendered, put down their weapons in the midst of battle. It was dishonorable and shameful. They deserved whatever they would get. We're going to stab them to death. A Japanese commander told the men. And soldiers from each company should be in on it. Some soldiers, filled with sake and anger, volunteered, grabbing their rifles and bayonets and heading up the trail to the top of the rise. Meanwhile, the POWs at the top of the hill were divided into three groups and stood four abreast. Each group had about 110 to 130 POWs. 27-year-old First Lieutenant Eduardo T. Vargas was one of them. He later testified, When we had formed into the groups desired by the officer, the Japanese soldiers started cutting the telephone wires into short pieces and tied each one of us individually. And then, with the long wire, tied each line along the group. Captain Felix further described, They started tying our hands behind us, each man connected, tied one behind the other. The prisoners were then marched in those columns of four further along the trail. Lieutenant Vargas recalled, Then each line was taken into the interior of the forest. I noticed then there were a lot of Japanese following us, laughing and shouting at the others, calling the others toward our group. When we reached the interior to a small clearing, we were first made to sit down facing the Japanese officers and soldiers. Near this clearing was the edge of a steep ravine. It was a heavily wooded area, so the men waiting at the place of separation were not able to see what was happening at the ravine. This ravine was about two kilometers east of the Pantangan River. It was a hilly area nestled in between two Bataan Mountains. The ravine, as far as I understand, was dry at the bottom, and it did not connect to the Pantangan River. A Japanese interpreter spoke to the men in Tagalog. That's the Philippines' language. Felix and other sources recalled his words as, 
My friends, you have to be patient. This is your fate. Had you surrendered earlier, maybe we would not kill you. But we suffered heavy casualties, so just pardon us. If there is anything that you want to request before we kill you, you ask them now. Several of the younger men asked to be spared, but those pleas fell on deaf ears. Captain Felix, who I believe was in the first group of POWs, described what came next. I was in the first column. They moved us about 15 yards in front of the other three columns to the edge of the ravine and made us sit on the ground. Just before executing us, the Jap soldiers around gave us, stuck cigarettes in our mouths and lighted them for us. But on a given signal by the Jap officer in charge, they started bayoneting and beheading us on that line. I was on the extreme left of that line, and I was watching on the right. I saw at least two heads cut off before they struck me in the back with a bayonet. The first thrust hit me in the shoulder blade. The second went through and through, and I thought they had cut my intestines. I fell on my side, and the Jap soldier thrust again. This time they hit my spinal column. He tried a fourth one, and it hit the upper part of my chest, the upper part of my back. After bayoneting Captain Felix and beheading the others in his column, the Japanese executioners pushed the men over the edge of the ravine. Down in the Japanese camp, Private Isamu Murakami was chosen for special duty because he had excelled in bayonet training. He wasn't an invested soldier, meaning he hated being in the army and he hated the entire war. Still, when the lieutenant came to fetch the group, he had to follow him up the hill to a clearing along the trail and at the edge of a ravine. Four tied Filipino men stood at the precipice, facing away from the ravine. Japanese leaders had the Philippines stand facing their executioners after the sight of comrades' bodies in the ravine upset the prisoners too much, making the executions that much more difficult. The officer in charge called Murakami's name, he reluctantly stepped forward and his sergeant said, Just kill one and you can go back to camp. Mirakami didn't move. The sergeant continued in an angry whisper. There are a lot of officers here from other units. Their men are killing the prisoners and our company commander wants to show them that our men can do this too. You should do this as quickly as possible. Just one and you can go back or you will be killed by the company commander. The officer in charge grew impatient and yelled at the sergeant. Why don't you tell your men to do it quickly? This is the order of the emperor. Feeling he had no choice, Murakami stepped forward, his rifle ready, facing the man he was about to kill. The man's eyes were filled with fear. Murakami got into stance, then lunged forward with a yeah, aiming for the man's heart. He heard a snap and guessed he'd broken a rib. He twisted the blade and pulled his bayonet from the body. Blood gushed from the wound, and the man sank to his knees. Turning away from the sight, Mirakami shouted in disgusted defiance. I'm done. Kick him down, the officer ordered. Mirakami turned back to the twitching body on the ground, placed his heel, and pushed the man into the ravine. The three Filipinos bound to the man fell with him. The ravine was filling with bodies, and the air with the sound of moaning, screaming, and crying. A disgusted Mirakami wiped blood from his bayonet and clothing, tossed the towel into the ravine, and ran back to camp. Other young soldiers were doing the same behind him. 
Did you notice the officer's words above regarding the massacre? Quote, this is the order of the emperor, close quote. At this time, all Japanese military recruits were taught that their officers were infallible and that any order issued by a superior must be treated as an order given by the divine emperor himself, who, as a living god, was always correct, as were his subordinates. That was British historian Mark Felton. And, boy, is that a dangerous, loaded belief. It allowed such individuals as Colonel Tsuchi, the radical officer who supposedly ordered the mass execution, to order some truly abhorrent things. Over the past two episodes, I've talked about some of the speculated reasons why the Japanese were so cruel to POWs. These reasons have included young, uneducated, and indoctrinated soldiers trying to show their worth, a, quote, perverted form of Bushido, close quote, racism and retaliation for the deaths of fellow Japanese servicemen during the Bataan campaign. The Pantengen massacre was definitely a retaliatory action. Just think back to the interpreter's words. In this episode, we're going to add another layer to the reasoning, that of the military and government ideology in Japan, and how both shaped military doctrine. Japan becoming part of Western commerce in the mid-1800s showcased how backward the country and culture was technologically, economically, and militarily. Throughout the late 1800s and early 1900s, Japan sought to become a military power, and they had quite a bit of help from Britain. But the United States, Britain, and other Western nations grew concerned with Japan's rise as a military power, and they took measures to counter Japan's rise. But this was a mistake because these actions increased Japanese feelings that the Western powers, who they wanted to join, looked down on them as Asians, and that the West wanted to, according to a leading Japanese scholar at the time, preserve the status quo and further the domination of the world by the Anglo-Saxons. I've said it before, but World War II really was, as one of its core issues, caused by racism on all sides. And millions of people had to die so various races could attempt to prove they were on top. It sickens me. Japan's military successes in the early 1900s led to extreme patriotism and xenophobia within Japan, which in turn informed the idea that Japan was racially superior to all other nations. Further, as historian Felton continued, In 1890, the emperor had been declared divine, a direct descendant of the sun god Amaterasu, an idea rigorously taught in schools throughout Japan well into the 20th century. Several generations of Japan believed that Emperor's divinity demanded unquestioning obedience of not only him, but also his representatives in the government and military. It was a messy setting for nationalist military leaders to push onto their inferiors the ideology that all commands came from and were for the emperor. All this led to Japan becoming a military state with an undercurrent of racist ideas, especially that Japan was a master race, and with an extreme perverted form of the samurai honor code Bushido. Prevalent among these bastardizations was the idea that battlefield honor demanded everything a soldier had to offer, in other words, his life, and that death was preferable to surrender. These beliefs were indoctrinated into military recruits from day one of their training, 
and the results of such indoctrination were seen in atrocious war crimes committed from the fall of Bataan complete through to the fall of Japan. A Japanese private named Yoshiaki Nagai wanted to join the killing forces, but he was too sick with malaria even to stand. Instead, he crawled up the trail and found a perch above the ravine from where he could see all that was happening. He noticed that some of the prisoners, upon reaching the edge of the ravine, jumped into the ravine rather than wait for execution. Their bodies bounced and their bones broke as they tumbled down to the bed of rocks at the bottom. Up on the ridge, Japanese soldiers had to pick up the beheaded prisoners by the arms and legs, and on the count of three, Ichi, Ni, San, threw them into the pit. He saw a sunburned American at the feet of a Japanese soldier, the man's red skin making him stand out against the darker skin all around him. The man was wounded but obviously alive, his body flailing around as he lay face down on the trail. He looks like a frog swimming in water. Nagai thought. Then he saw a Japanese soldier pick up a large rock, yell his dead commander's name, and smash the rock down on the American's head. The pomegranate-colored body stopped moving. Private Nagai stayed on his perch until late afternoon, listening to the shouts of executioners with each thrust and the nearly simultaneous screams of their victims. By this point, Nagai's fever was making him too sick to remain so he crawled back to his camp for rest. Also watching the executions that afternoon from a vantage point above the ravine was Private First Class Takisada Shigeta. Earlier that day, he had refused to join the killing force. He watched for hours as soldiers from his unit left camp only to return covered in sweat and blood and very thirsty. Copious amounts of sake awaited them and they continued to imbibe freely as they compared their killing stats. Shigeta didn't want to kill anyone. He thought surrendering was enough of a punishment for them, and he continued to recuse himself from joining the killing groups leaving camp, despite significant cajoling from his peers. Soon though, some executioners began to get angry at Shigeta for abstaining. A shouting match started and his sergeant stepped in, telling Shigeta, Either go to the killing site or take your machine gun to the hill above the ravine and make sure none of the bodies at the bottom try to crawl away. Shigeta chose the latter, taking his machine gun and best friend to the top of a hill overlooking the killing fields. The site was disturbing. The ravine was filling up with bodies. Moans, cries, screams of suffering men echoed around the hills. The breeze on that hot, humid day brought the nausea-inducing smell of blood. Imagine standing in front of a prisoner and watching his eyes at the very moment you pierce him with your bayonet. Shigeta thought as he watched the executions below. After some time of stupefied watching, the two men decided to fire a few rounds of machine gun bullets at the opposing, bodiless hill, just in case their sergeant realized they weren't firing any shots. Lieutenant Eduardo Vargas was likely among the latter group of prisoners to reach the edge of the ravine. Vargas recalled, While I was smoking, I tried to pray that if I be killed, I'd be killed instantly without any hardship. And I raised my head and saw a Japanese sergeant pull out his saber and raise it up. I just bent my head as far forwards as possible 
and prayed that if my neck would be cut, just cut it clean and through, without any hardship. Suddenly, I heard shouts behind me, and I felt a thrust in my back. I moved my body forward following the thrust and let myself fall down. He was bayoneted on the right side of his back. He and at least two of the men in his column survived the fall into the ravine. One of the men fell on top of Vargas, covering his legs. Another man covered his back, so that Vargas was completely covered for the remainder of the massacre. A Japanese soldier, noticing that one of the men covering Lieutenant Vargas was alive, stabbed his bayonet through the man. The blade went through the man's body and then through Vargas's right hand. Somehow, Vargas did not cry out. Now, I'm not certain how far down the ravine Vargas and his companions were. Seems to me they may have been among the last men massacred if they were still close enough for Japanese bayonets to reach them. The Japanese soldiers left, and the other POW covering Vargas's body called out, Damn you Japs, come back and finish me off, kill me! Stop! Stop! Vargas replied in a harsh whisper, They will come back, maybe find some of us alive and actually kill us all off. Parter, please let me die. I can't stand it anymore. The Filipino soldier responded. He then shouted again to the Japanese, a couple of whom came back and stabbed him three times. They then noticed that the other man on top of Vargas was alive and stabbed him four. Meanwhile, Vargas didn't move and even tried not to breathe so that they wouldn't notice that I was alive. Vargas stayed in that position until dark, and he was certain no one was around anymore. His bonds were loose, so he stood up and undid them. Then he looked around to see if anyone else was alive. Not finding anyone, he ran away as fast as he could. At dark, the killing stopped. Captain Felix recalled, The massacres started about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. At about 5 o'clock that same afternoon, there was hardly anybody living. I was conscious all the time, but I didn't move. I could not move because there was a Jap soldier going back and forth and I was afraid that he would discover that I was alive. I waited until darkness came and at dark I removed my head from under Lieutenant Jacinto's already stiff legs and tried to rest. There was no sound at all from my companions and it seemed to me that I was the only one living there. My problem then was how to free myself from the rest of the dead. I was so desperate myself that I tried to commit suicide. I didn't expect to live anyway, so I tried to press my nose on the ground and force myself not to breathe. But nothing would come of it. I got tired of committing suicide and thought of a way to escape. Since the ground was sloping, I had to brace myself. Brace my feet on the ground until the wire connecting me to the rest of the dead men would come across my mouth. And every time it would come across my mouth, I tried to chew the wire. It took me three hours before I could cut the wire that connected me with the rest of my dead companions. While Captain Felix was attempting this, he heard groaning several yards away. He called out, Are you still alive? Yes, I freed myself from the wire. Can you come here and untie me? The POW tried, but he was severely wounded and in an almost helpless condition. So Felix continued working to cut the wire connecting him to the dead men. He did so, then went over to the wounded man, 
who he discovered was named Lieutenant Devencia. Devencia was able to untie the wire that still bound Felix's hands behind his back. Felix continued, Lieutenant Devencia, aside from three rifle wounds, had 11 bayonet wounds all over his chest. We were both very thirsty, and being the strength of the two, I went over the dead bodies, believing that I could get water from the canteens of the dead men, but I couldn't find any. The last resort I had to do was to urinate in my canteen, and I tried to drink it, but I just couldn't take the taste of it, so I gave it to Lieutenant De Vencia. Apparently, he was very thirsty for the lack of blood he suffered, and he drank the urine. After resting for about an hour, I told Lieutenant Devencia that it would be wise to leave the place, go to a place of safety where we could die peacefully. The two men were located on steep sloping ground, and Devencia couldn't stand, so they had to scoot on their hands and buttocks away from the massacre site. When he had fallen into the ravine, Captain Felix knew he was facing north toward the place of massacre, and that knowledge helped him determine which direction to go now. Around 3 a.m., after a couple hours of moving, Devencia couldn't continue on. Leave me here, the young lieutenant told Felix. Felix wanted to encourage him to continue, but knew the man was too weak to make it much farther. Devencia's fading voice broke the silence. Before you go, build me a fire, so I can be warm before... The young man's voice faded out. Felix began gathering sticks, and when the fire was crackling before him, Devencia had one last request. If you should reach Manila, please find my family and tell them what happened to me. Felix nodded in acceptance and reluctantly left the young soldier in the middle of the Bataan jungle. It was the last time anyone saw Devencia, and I do not know if his body was ever recovered. While Felix and Vargas were escaping the massacre, the majority of the Japanese 122nd Infantry, who had carried out the executions, packed up and left the Pantangan River for another biovac. Before leaving, Private Murakami, who had reluctantly killed one of the captives, chanted a prayer for the man he had killed. That night, he had a vision of the dead man and others coming to him. He begged them, Don't come only to me. Please appear in front of the emperor and ask the emperor how he would feel if he had been ordered to stab you. At their new encampment, machine gunner Shigeta sat around a silent campfire with men who had participated in the killing. Watching the men, Shigeta thought, They were all in high spirits a few hours ago. They were saying, I killed this many or I killed that many. Now none of them are willing to talk because it was not an honorable deed. And despite not taking part in the massacre, Shigeta knew he would never forget the echoes of the dying men in that valley. The next morning, the malaria-ridden Private Nagai and his unit left the Pantingan River camp. Able to walk now, Nagai followed with the other soldiers up the trail and past the killing site. He looked over the ravine. It was filled with bodies. Years later, he said, they are piled up to the edge of the road. If I sat on the edge and stretched out my arm, I could touch them. Later that morning, he heard a bugler sounding the call to colors. The music sounded especially bright, and the guy told himself, We won. We won. 
Around 9 o'clock on the morning following the massacre, so April 13, 1942, Captain Pedro Felix came to a creek. As he approached the water, he heard rustling in the leaves. Startled, he looked behind him and saw two Filipino non-commissioned officers that he recognized. They were both weak and wounded, one with a cut at the base of his neck that exposed the spinal column bones where his head and body connected. The three men washed their wounds in the creek and drank much needed water. While doing so, Lieutenant Eduardo Vargas, who had escaped alone the previous evening, arrived at the stream and joined the group. Captain Felix was the highest ranking man, militarily speaking, but also the weakest. However, he told them, If you'll stick with me, I'm sure that I can get us out of this hole. Captain Felix explained that if they followed the stream, they would very likely come to a river. And if they followed that river, it would empty into a bay. Whether that was a bay on the western side of Bataan or on the eastern side, Felix didn't know. The men agreed to follow Felix. We subsisted on snails, cracking the shells, and we ate them all. Also on all fruit and leaves that we picked on the way, as long as they were not the bitter leaves. On the third day, their ranks swelled from four to five when they came across another massacre survivor. On the fourth day, they stumbled into a sector where Captain Felix had been previously assigned. He recalled, I could pick my way blindfolded. They soon came to a former army biovac area where they were disappointed to not find any food. They were just about to continue their journey when two Japanese soldiers on horseback approached the area, stopping at the river to let their horses drink. Luckily, the five men were still hidden, and they remained so. Soon after the riders left, a Japanese vehicle convoy passed on the nearby road. After those two close calls, the men decided to continue hiding for the day. After dark, they resumed their journey, staying along the river rather than risk exposure on trails or roads. They were back down to four men now. The sergeant whose spinal column had been exposed couldn't continue. Captain Felix says that by this time, at least some of the man's brain was exposed and maggots had already started infesting the wound. He was just too weak to go on. The four remaining men stopped for the night and slept only to discover, at first light, that their camp was 50 yards away from a Japanese biovac area. They quickly left, staying in the jungle as they paralleled the main mid-peninsula road. Heading west toward a Filipino town, they came upon farmers who knew Captain Felix and who were able to give the men shelter, medical aid, food, and water. On April 24th, two weeks after the massacre, a still-wounded Captain Felix arrived at his home in Manila dressed like a peasant and riding in a horse-drawn kalesa, that's a two-wheeled carriage. He had joined a group of Bataan refugees headed north. Once at home, he told his family his astonishing story. I don't know when Lieutenant Vargas arrived home. Both Vargas and Felix lost track of the other men in their group. And as far as Felix and Vargas knew, they were the only two survivors of the massacre. In January 1946, mere months after Japan surrendered to the United States, General Masaharu Homa was brought before an American war crimes tribunal in Manila. Homa was the commander over all Japanese forces on Bataan during the Battle of Bataan and during the Death March. 
The allies held him responsible for the actions of all the men under his command, although he insisted that he did not know the details or atrocities committed during the march. He was charged with the war crimes that occurred during the Bataan Death March, including the Pentangan River Massacre. During the month-long trial, Captain Pedro Felix and Major Eduardo Vargas testified about what happened at the Pantingan River on April 12, 1942. All of their words in this episode come directly from their respective testimonies. One person not tried for baton-related war crimes was Colonel Masanobu Tsuji, the man who reportedly ordered the massacre. He was a real piece of work. A high-profile, radical military leader during Japan's invasion of China in the 1930s and then throughout World War II, Tsuji fled after the Japanese surrender to avoid arrest. Officers under his command, who had followed his orders, were tried and executed for some of those crimes. Tsuji had fled to Thailand, then to China, and finally to Vietnam. In 1948, he returned to Japan and again took a place of some prominence. In 1961, he traveled to Laos and vanished. Some thought he was killed in the Civil War there. Others that he became an advisor to the North Vietnamese government. He even worked for the CIA during the Cold War, but he was of little use to them. Declassified agency documents state that he was, quote, extremely irresponsible will not take the consequences for his actions, close quote, and that he was, quote, the type of man who, given the chance, would start World War III without any misgivings, close quote. I just have no words to describe this despicable man. It is men like him who I believe we can really blame for World War II atrocities. And isn't it disgustingly ironic how dishonorable and disloyal his orders and actions were, considering that he was part of the military leadership indoctrinating young, impressionable men about the absolute importance of honor and loyalty. Now, I do not know what happened to Captain Felix and Major Vargas after the HOMA trial. I've tried to find historical records or newspaper articles, but I've come up empty-handed. However, they were not the only two survivors of the Pantangan River Massacre. Lieutenant Manuel Yan who later was the head of the Philippines Armed Forces and an ambassador to Thailand, and Captain Ricardo Papa, who became Manila's chief of police, also survived. And that's the story of the atrocious war crime that is called the Pantangan River Massacre. While this massacre was occurring, tens of thousands of Filipino and American POWs were marching north toward a not-quite-finished Philippine Army training camp that soon became more like an enormous mass grave. More on that next time. This is Left Behind. Thank you for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about the Pantingen Massacre on the Left Behind Facebook page and website and on Instagram at Left Behind Podcast. The links are in the show description. And by the way, I did not post any explicit images. If you'd like to know more about the massacre, I suggest the book Tears in the Darkness by Elizabeth and Michael Norman. The Normans interviewed several former Japanese soldiers for their book, 
which is where I obtained that information for this episode. If you appreciate this podcast, please subscribe so you'll know when I drop a new episode and consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Left Behind is research written and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers by Tyler Harmon, Jake Harenberg, and Connor Davis. And I'll be back next time with a literal train ride to hell. Hell.